trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for people who are determined to see the world as it really is. And of course, in order to make that happen, you have to recognize there is a war on for your mind. You've got to be willing to step up and think clearly and independently, which uh, translating that just so you understand, I'm not saying you have to agree with me or you are not seeing the world clearly. I'm just saying that uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of spin, a lot of narrative that's designed not to keep us informed, but actually to keep us within the boundaries of approved opinion. Yeah, I'm not about that. I want you to be able to see the world as it is. I want to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. But most importantly, I am here to affirm that it's better that people know you for who you are and what you stand for than simply who or what you're against. So with that in mind... Please join me as we revel in wrong think and explore some of the interesting topics of the day. Actually, some good news to share. I'm really excited. It's not often, maybe it's just the times that we live in, but it's not very often that I get a chance to share some good news about things that are happening. But let's start with the good news. A federal judge has struck down the Biden administration's proposed mandate, which would require all government contractors and subcontractors to get the vax. Now, that's a third strike. This is the third of the Biden mandates that's now been enjoined. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, Press Secretary Jen Psaki's still like, well, we are confident we have the legal means to make this stuff happen. But it's not looking good, at least for the Biden administration. And I'm kind of grateful for this. I I think I mentioned I I have a 16-year-old son who does some some part-time work with a guy who is a subcontractor for the FDA. It's complicated, but essentially, he's a federal employee. And so they came to my son here a few months ago and said, oh, if you're going to work for this uh, subcontractor, you're going to have to get the vax. And uh, interestingly enough, both the subcontractor and my son said, we're not interested. I don't want it. So the federal government came back with a little deal to sweeten it. And, you know, you offer a 16-year-old kid, hey, we'll pay you 500 bucks if you get the shot. I don't know about you, but if I were, if I were a 16-year-old kid, 500 bucks, is, that ain't chump change. That would, that would be a pretty, pretty big incentive. Very proud to tell you, though, my son did, did not uh, give in. It's cool. He's he's pretty settled on. I am not going to be forced into getting the vaccine. I want to share with you a take on this from Daniel McAdams. This is from the Ron Paul Institute. And here's the reason why people who love liberty should take a minute and at least feel appreciation. You can, you know, if you want to if you want to gloat, you can do that, but really just be appreciative that you know the juggernaut of we're going to impose this and we're going to make this all happen. It's running into some real obstacles. Daniel McAdams says today may well mark the day the Biden administration's COVID tyranny suffers a fatal blow. U.S. District Judge R. Stan Baker issued a nationwide block on Biden's mandate that all U.S. government contractors and subcontractors, some 25 percent of the U.S. workforce, 
must take the experimental COVID shots. Now, as U.S. Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky observed, that's three strikes. The Medicare mandate was nuked. The 100-plus worker mandate was nuked. Now the federal contractor mandate is nuked nationwide. Three strikes, and we hope they're out, says Daniel McAdams. Now, in his ruling, Judge Baker observed, quote, The court acknowledges the tragic toll that the COVID-19 pandemic has wrought throughout the nation and the globe. However, even in times of crisis, this court must preserve the rule of law and ensure that all branches of government act within the bounds of their constitutionally granted authorities, end quote. In other words, the judge correctly concluded that the U.S. Constitution is not suspended because of a virus. Now, Daniel McAdams says <clears throat> there's good reason to believe that, cynical and authoritarian as it is, that Biden administration knew all along the president's mandates didn't stand a chance in court. But that the real game was to terrify the population sufficiently between promulgation and repudiation that more Americans would sign on to the shots. Now, there's nothing that focuses a family's breadwin- a family breadwinner's mind like facing being thrown onto the streets just because he or she did not want to take a medical treatment that, even in the words of the CDC director, neither prevents infection nor transmission, and thus could not in any sane world be considered a vaccine. Now, it's popular these days to throw around the term terrorism to justify oppressing one's political enemies. But it is definitional, says Daniel McAdams, that the Biden administration's use of jab or job on millions of Americans is raw terrorism. As with the eviction moratorium, the Biden administration openly and even proudly admits that it breaks the law to pursue its political goals, daring the other co-equal branches of government to, to right the listing ship of state. He says, with Congress predictably inept at living up to its constitutional obligations regarding reeling in executive overreach on amphetamines, it's a welcome surprise that several members of the judicial branch are stepping up to their constitutional task. So, yes, three strikes and you're out, but watch the zombie rise again. We who defend civil liberties and personal choice are slowly winning, but Daniel McAdams warns the beast is not yet slain. So I'm grateful that that there's at least some resistance and pushback here because, man, I'll tell you, there's not been a lot of, uh, we haven't had a lot of victories to celebrate over the last couple of years. And this is true not just at the federal level, but right down to the local level. You've seen far too many municipalities and and states willing to jump on board, just kind of, well, everybody else is doing this. I guess we got to do this too because we got to make sure that, you know, nobody thinks we're not doing our part. But this is one of those times where you, you've just got to be willing to question. And, you know, this is just in the U.S. If you look around the world right now, um, it, looks like, uh, it looks like leaders, particularly in Europe, are really doubling down and just, you know, nope, we're going we're gonna to have vaccine passports. We're going to make sure that we're keeping the vaccinated and the unvaccinated separate. So we're going to create an apartheid of sorts, a medical apartheid to keep people from mingling. But I think people are finally reaching that breaking point where they're realizing, hey, I don't really have that much left to lose at this point. I don't know who it was who said it, but uh, some of the wisest words I've ever heard are, there is nothing in this world more dangerous than a man who has nothing left to lose. 
I can paraphrase it better with a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which is, when you take away everything that a man has, he is no longer your captive. You've set him free. Because, you know, there's no more leverage to use against him. I think about, there's an example of what uh, Ammon Bundy was telling me when when he was uh, being held, you know, for almost two years awaiting trial. The the jail staff, the, the prison staff where he was being kept, would do everything they could to, to break his spirit, to bring him into compliance. You know, they wanted to strip him and the other defendants every time they came in and out of solitary confinement. I mean, look, these guys have been locked in a cell with nothing. But to come in or out of that cell, they had to submit to a full strip search, full body cavity search. I mean, it was just... It was punitive. It was just for the sake of humiliation. And there came a point where Ammon just was like, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, now you have to do it because our word is the law and you will obey. And it became a contest of wills. And at one point, I remember Ammon telling me that that, uh, he finally just just told the guards, what are you going to do? You've taken everything away from me that you possibly can. You know, I can't have phone calls with my family. I can't even read my scriptures. I have nothing. What are you going to do? You're going to take away my birthday? And they really didn't have an answer at that point. Gosh, we've leaned on him. What, what more could we do? <laughs> so the good news is, yeah, we're, we're making some progress. But like Daniel McAdams says, don't get lulled into a sense of, ah, from here on we can just coast because it's easy going. This is a process that never ends. There never is a point where you can say my liberty is so secure that uh, it couldn't possibly slip away for me or for the people who will follow in my footsteps. This is why you and I have to be the kind of individuals who understand the principles and the practices of liberty. And we not only have to understand them, but we have to be willing to live them. That's the difference between a free people and an unfree people. Free people not only know the truths that pertain to what it takes to to live in a state of freedom, but they actually live those truths. And it's not real easy. And they pass them on to the people who will follow behind them. So what are you doing to teach the people around you to likewise love and understand the principles and practices of liberty? I know it seems like a daunting task, but uh, here's some more good news. I'm here to help you, at least to the best of my ability, to keep that flame going and hopefully pass it on to uh, upcoming generations. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I probably should take just a moment here and just tell you how much I appreciate you being a part of my audience. Look, I know there are so many voices out there, and there are some really great voices, okay? It's not like, yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to settle, and thanks for settling, or me. I think there are a lot of different voices out there doing their level best to uh, to speak truth, to, to make sure that you have an understanding of what's going on. So I'm grateful that uh, that you've chosen to give this program a chance and I want to let you know there are great sponsors who help to make this possible how well through through their generosity and through their sponsorship of the show they allow me to focus my efforts primarily upon finding 
and getting out the best information that I possibly can. It's, it's almost an obsession. I do this on a daily basis. I'm always looking for good, insightful information. And these are the sponsors who make it possible. So I hope that you'll think about them. I hope you'll click on the link that I provide in my show notes that uh, will connect you with each one of them. <clears throat> these are great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center, also in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com. So I've never been on a safari, but it looks like I will no longer have to travel clear to another continent in order to get a taste of the safari experience. Now, I wish I could say, hey, this is a great thing. What, the safaris come to me? Well, it's because crime in many American cities is getting so bad that local media is actually advising the public to use safari rules when entering Democrat municipal regions. This is from the conservativetreehouse.com. And I got to admit, this, this is a little bit sad, but uh, it also shouldn't take you too much by surprise. The article says, An inevitable evolution now takes place as rampant crime, violence, and anarchy take over the municipal region, regions controlled by leftists and Democrats. What is described in a video excerpt from ABC News in Maryland is what we've described as the safari rules. And as stunning as it may seem at first glance, the media are informing the public on how to behave when entering any area where Democrats are in charge of civil society. Now, it's important not to accept this new normal. The article says, instead, think about this broadcast in the, in the larger picture of what it represents. The media no longer question whether you'll be attacked. In fact, the media are now advising us on how to mitigate our pending attack. But the attack itself is a foregone conclusion. So, for instance, this is from ABC7, I believe, in, in Maryland, talking about how crime in Washington, D.C. is so bad that the media is giving people tips on how to avoid problems. And it's things like uh, keep your windows up and your doors locked. Equip your vehicle with anti-theft or GPS for tracking. Know your surroundings. Avoid getting boxed in. Keep your cell phone in your pocket. Apparently, the deeper blue the region, the more dangerous the crime within it. Portland, I just had to sneak a glance over at you. This is the natural outcome of policy on a local level that allows criminal elements to operate without fear or accountability. Smash and grab robberies. You hear about this a lot in Southern California, particularly Los Angeles. Armed robberies, carjacking, looting, the general breakdown of law and order. It's well underway in the municipal regions under the control of the Democrat Party apparatus. Now, the article here says these outcomes are the natural cause and effect from leftist policy being carried out. This is exactly the type of social anarchy that's predictable from a process of demonizing law enforcement, promoting social justice, and then letting the criminal elements within society take over. Now, the evolution of safari rules has been going on for several years. However, now it appears the point of no return has been crossed. That means the situation is no longer reversible because the law enforcement mechanisms have been deconstructed entirely. Additionally, the application of law and consequence has been withdrawn from the, from the system. So people who are trapped within these blue regions are now directly being told to follow the safari rules. Now, in essence, 
The underlying elements of the Safari Principle narrative begin with a pretense that victims of the mob, any mob or individual predator, have no one except themselves to blame because they did not follow the rules of the safari. So when in the proximity of any person, event, or situation that's engaged in an unlawful act supported by the political left, you are not permitted to exit your vehicle or engage in activity that will lead to your targeting. If you enter their space to destroy, you are to blame for your own outcome. The safari narrative includes includes catchphrases like, he or she should not have gotten out of the car, or he or she shouldn't have traveled to fill in the blank, or he or she should have known better when, etc. So 2015 in Baltimore, Maryland, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake then became a public advocate for safari rules when she proclaimed her decision to let the riots, looting, and arson continue as it was intended specifically to give the mobs space to destroy. Now, despite the dozens of property owners who saw their shops, stores, and livelihoods go up in smoke, the rules of the safari took precedent. Again, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death in Minnesota, the rules of the safari became evident when looting, arson, and riots were defined as expressions of speech. All violence supported by the political left is considered speech, while speech opposed by the left is defined as violence. Now, because the visible chaos did not align with the gentle media descriptions of protests, the corporate media decision was made to modify the language and then to describe the arson and riots by using the term mostly peaceful protests. And that term has struck has stuck within the visible chaos over the past few years in various forms. Of course, the word mostly is a relative term, and that provides the flexibility needed to convince viewers the violence you're witnessing isn't really the violence you're witnessing. So after years of this type of obfuscation and denial, ordinary life in the deep blue regions has become untenable. Rampant looting and lawlessness is now the new normal, and don't look for it to get any better in the near future. The taller the blue spike, the more likely the violent crime. All of the urban areas with Democrat policy are the most dangerous in the nation. The safe places to live are fewer and fewer as urban regions expand their influence. So borrowing from Twain, history may not always repeat, but it darn sure rhymes. And these same blue regions like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles were barely livable in the 1970s. But most people have forgotten how bad things were. What's happening right now in these deep blue regions is essentially a circle of cause and effect. Unfortunately, now those metropolitan areas have expanded into more states and regions, from Houston, Texas, to Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Atlanta, Georgia, even smaller areas like Asheville, North Carolina. If Democrats are in charge of municipal policy, this article says those areas will experience increases in violent crime and property theft. Increases in all types of crimes are the natural outcome of diminished law enforcement. I don't think that's necessarily calling for a police state, but, you know, careful there. You can swing too far the other direction. The article says the current rise in federalism will likely save the republic. However, those who live in the deep blue regions within blue states are now specifically responsible for following the safari rules if they wish to survive. Now, here's the interesting part. The article says none of this is accidental. This massive crime wave is an outcome of ideology. However, and this is the important part to emphasize, unlike previous times when this cycle of violence took place, this time there is no capacity to reverse course. 
There are no police or law enforcement left in these regions with motivation or support to save you. So what's the recommendation? Well, it's if you can leave, get out. And if you can't leave, at least arm yourself while you still can. I think a lot of people are taking that first option. Just based on what I see about the trends of people moving into the Intermountain West. And it's not to suggest everything's perfect here. Yes, sir. Sun shines every day. Birds sweetly singing on the windowsill. Even in the dead of winter. Yeah, we got our problems, but uh, not like the deep blue municipalities. So there's a little something you can be thankful for, assuming you don't live deep in a deep blue municipality. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a minute here to thank my sponsors, including lifesavingfood.com. Yeah, we're talking food storage. This is ready-wise, dehydrated, and freeze-dried foods. 25-year shelf life. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty safe bet. And, and you know, the best time to, to buy your food storage is when it's in stock, when there's a sale going on, when when stores are, are still, you know, fairly high. The selection is good. And, uh, you know, if you can get a really good discount, well, that would make it a good time as well. Well, here's some good news. That's exactly what's going on with lifesavingfood.com. They still have a lot of great items to choose from. There are, you know, something to fit every budget. There's, there's a, I, I love this grab-and-go bag. It's a, it's a dry bag, like you would take on a river rafting trip. Seven days worth of food. It's $110. But listen to this. At checkout, if you use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code, you get a neat 25% discount. Now, that's just for my listeners, and it's just from lifesavingfood.com. Click on the link in my show notes, you'll get all the details. So in the last segment, we're talking about people voting with their feet, relocating away from the deep blue places where, you know, the uh, basically the rule of law is breaking down. I was just reading about how the, the smash and grab robberies that are becoming very, very common in San Francisco and Los Angeles are actually starting to spread now to violent home invasions of some of the richer areas of Los Angeles. Now, I suppose on the one hand, that's one way to get the authorities involved. What? <laughs> our, our wealthy sponsors, our wealthy uh, you know supporters are, are being targeted? Why, we should do something about this. I mean... It's too bad for the rest of you who aren't those wealthy elite, but hey, you know, at least now we know there's a problem because it's affecting us and our cronies. I'm grateful for those people who are seeing the light and moving in record numbers to the remaining islands of freedom throughout the U.S. In fact, a friend of mine in Montana had a conversation with a, an associate of his, a businessman from, from Sweden. And uh, this this guy from Sweden apparently is very very financially secure, owns a number of different businesses, including one here in the United States. And in talking with my friend, this man made the comment that there are maybe a couple dozen islands of freedom, not just nationwide, but in the world, places where people are still pretty free to live their lives as they choose. And to my my friend who lives in Montana, this this individual from Sweden was saying, you're very fortunate to live in one of those places. 
I kind of feel like I live in one of those places as well. Again, not perfect, but things seem much more normal here than they do in some of the mass population centers that I've been in within the last couple of years. So here's some advice. If you're considering a move to a freer locale, uh, Dan Galent, let me see if I can get his name right. Dan Galenter. Okay. (laughs) Just took a couple tries. He says, escape to a good state, but don't ruin it. You know, 20 years ago, it was hard to see any major difference in government from one state to another, except perhaps in the prevailing tax rates. rates. But now, he says, it's obvious. He says, my elementary and high school teachers never did a good job of explaining American federalism. They left me, and I suspect many of my fellow students, confused. And maybe they were a little confused themselves. If the federal government's laws are supreme and can overrule state laws, why not just have all laws uniformly adopted at the federal level? Well, he says the federal government was not, of course, intended to be what it's become, the daily manager of every citizen's life. The founders envisioned a federal government that remained in the background, available when it was necessary to get all the states fighting together to win a war, uh, present to help explain a unified foreign policy, and above all, to guarantee that goods and people could flow freely from one state to another with no impediment. Now, that last point is the reason for the Interstate Commerce Clause. Any national government more aggressive than that would never have been adopted by the liberty-minded states that had just won the Revolutionary War. And even that proved a hard sell. Two years and the addition of a Bill of Rights were required before a sufficient number of states were willing to ratify. But now the Interstate Commerce Clause is used as the justification for the entire regulatory regime— Every federal regulatory and enforcement agency, from the EPA to the CDC to the FBI, cites its authority for existing as that one fraction of a sentence that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce among the several states. States. Now, the federal government gets away with this, meanwhile, because the Supreme Court has usurped from the states the right to determine which laws are constitutional. The original version of the Supreme Court was simply the court of last appeal to settle disputes between states. But when Chief Justice John Marshall invented the concept of judicial review out of whole cloth, no one at the time had the foresight to say, wait a minute. So in 250 years, the federal government has grown up from a whelp to a monster that apparently can shut down businesses and lock people in their homes at its whim. Ironically, with this assertion of new federal superpowers, federalism, too, is reasserting itself. The author says, when I was in school, it was hard to see any major difference in government from one state to another, except perhaps in prevailing tax rates. But now it's obvious. New York wants me to show health papers to go to a restaurant. Oregon is moving to make its indoor mask mandate permanent. In Florida, meanwhile, there are no masks and essentially no COVID. Federalism is now a grand stage for leftist hysteria to play itself out against American freedom. But he says American freedom is winning. People are leaving California and New York and moving to Texas and Florida in record numbers. But as Americans continue to frustrate the attempts of government to contain them, to restrain them, and above all, to take their money, the federal government will become ever more aggressive in attempting to enforce a uniform and uniformly leftist way of life. 
Now, there are a few state governors who have the courage to stand up to the federal government. We need more governors like Florida's Ron DeSantis and fewer or none like Georgia's Brian Kemp. And for those who are urging DeSantis to run for the presidency in 2024, hold your horses. Because a good governor is going to be just as important in 2024 as a good president. These people don't grow on trees. In fact, there's not another governor in the country who can hold a candle to DeSantis in those matters of personal freedom fundamental to American life. So Dan Galertner, Galertner rather, says, this leaves us with the problem of leftists moving to free states and ruining them. This is exactly how Connecticut went from being the one state around New York with no state income tax to being the state with the highest income tax. Meanwhile, all of its manufacturing has collapsed or died or gone elsewhere. So he says, my proposed solution is simple. People should only be allowed to vote in the states in which they grew up. If you move to a new state, you're rejecting the style of government in the state you just left, but you may not understand why. To quote the lady who got off the plane in front of me on my last trip to Florida, everything is great here except the politics. Let your children grow up in the new state you've chosen, surrounded by a culture of greater freedom and independence. Dan Galertner says, chances are your children will understand it better than you do. I don't know about you, but uh, I I resonate with the idea. Look, I, I'm not one of those people, well, I'm here, so, you know, everybody else stay away, you know, go away. I got mine. I'm actually pretty happy to see the people who are moving to the region where I live. Because I suspect most of them are doing it out of a sense of, look, we're just trying to breathe free. But that doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, this is, uh, this is pretty hard stuff for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I, I know that some are going to bring their baggage with them. I feel like I have a duty to work with those people as best I can. By example, you know, maybe by word and persuasion if, if necessary, to show them why freedom is the better way. So don't uh, you know? Don't move to, don't move to the Intermountain West and then just hunker down on a mountain somewhere and you know pray that the world goes to hell in a handbasket without you. This was a tough thing for me to to accept, but for me to do what I need to do, I've got to be where there are people, or at least I've got to be able to to interact with people. I can't do, uh, I, I can't be an advocate for freedom. I can't be an advocate for conscience and private property rights and and liberty by isolating myself. And I don't think you can either. So I got a link to this in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. You know, I think about the comment this this, this uh, individual from Sweden made to my friend about islands of freedom in the world. And uh, maybe you're fortunate enough right now, you live in one of those islands of freedom. If you don't, I'd like to offer this gentle challenge to you. And that is, no matter where you are, even if you're in the middle of New York City, strive to make your immediate area, an island of freedom. In other words, carry that vibe with you no matter where you go, even if you're in the airport, one of the least free places on earth. Let there be an island of freedom wherever your presence happens to be. I think it's more of a matter of attitude than anything. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to GovernYourIncome.com. I know that there are people right now, because of some of the various mandates and some of the various conditions that have been put on them, you know, look, if you want to keep your job, this is the line you have to tow. Maybe it's, you know, getting the vaccination. Maybe it's you have to wear a mask. Maybe it's something else. But if you are looking to be truly independent, in other words, beholden to no one for your employment, you ought to take a look at GovernYourIncome.com. That's the website to go to. It'll take you to a landing page which will explain the opportunity in day trading in the foreign currency exchange markets, the Forex markets. Now, I know stock markets rise and fall. and There's been a fair amount of volatility in the stock markets here for quite some time. Probably more to come. But those foreign currency markets always are going to have to be operating because this is how, you know, this is how deals are done. This is how money is exchanged between nations. And if you're the kind of person who is, is motivated and willing to learn how to be a day trader, this is a company that will not only train you in how to do it and do it very well, but it will actually give you company money with which to work and to build your own capital. GovernYourIncome.com. Check it out there in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. All right, let's go to, okay, yeah, would you recognize totalitarianism? How would you know you were looking at totalitarianism? In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is pun intended. Would you recognize it if it was right under your nose? Okay, how about over your nose? (laughs) You see what I'm getting at? Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, says, The indicators show that totalitarianism in America is just around the corner. And she is one of many voices who are warning about where we appear to be headed. I'm thinking maybe that uh, it's time to, to pay attention to those warning voices. Annie Holmquist writes, New York City, what is it about you? The old song from the musical Annie starts going on to say, No other town in the whole 48 can half compare to you. Well, she says, it seems New York City is doing its best to keep this reputation of uniqueness intact with its rollout of what Mayor Bill de Blasio called a first-in-the-nation vaccine mandate for private companies. Employees of any private New York City company will have just three weeks to get the official jab in order to keep putting food on the table. That's according to a New York CBS affiliate. Now, such an announcement will likely bring panic to some and rejoicing to others. But regardless of the camp you find yourself in, this announcement provides a clue, a clue to where we are in the march of total, to totalitarianism. Urging other state officials to follow in his footsteps, de Blasio and his team of expert helpers touted the benefits of the mandate. Particularly noteworthy is the statement by Dr. Zeke Emanuel, who said that getting the unvaccinated vaccinated is critical to getting our control. We know that will not happen voluntarily. Now, the operative word there is control. de Blasio and his cohorts seem to seem not to have learned that such vaccine mandates are quite ineffective at controlling the virus for a couple of reasons. First, they're ineffective because at the government level or at the government level, because courts are increasingly calling their constitutionality into question. This was recently seen both in the mandate for companies with more than 100 employees and the mandate for health workers at hospitals receiving federal funding, which have been halted by judges 
responding to the multitude of lawsuits filed over the issue. As we pointed out earlier in the show, strike three. A judge just nullified Biden's attempt to make federal contractors and subcontractors get the jab as well. Annie Holmquist says vaccine mandates are increasingly unable to control things on the health and medicinal side as well, simply because the vaccine themselves, vaccines themselves rather, are proving more and more ineffective. A fact former New York Times journalist Alex Berenson documents in his new book, Pandemia. Putting trust in vaccines was a problem from the beginning, Berenson explains. For even the trials that drug companies used to test vaccines in the early stages were flawed giving an unclear picture of the shot's true effectiveness. Instead, Berenson writes, the trials showed that both vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna caused serious side effects in many people, especially after the second shot. Now, Berenson likens the sudden collapse of mRNA vaccine efficacy in the summer of 2021 to something out of classical literature where hubris gets its comeuppance in a harrowing way. Yet as these attempts to control the virus through mandates fall apart on different levels, government officials such as those in New York City persist in seeking to control the virus through vaccine mandates. Now what they may or may not realize, however, is that in their quest to control the virus, they seem to have fallen prey to wanting to control the masses whom they apparently view as their subjects. It is this desire to control that gives us a hint as to where we are on that totalitarian timeline. Now, the good news is, judging from philosopher Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, that we aren't quite there yet. The bad news is that our leaders have a thirst for totalitarianism and are inching ever closer. It's these same leaders, our elite, that Arendt says are attracted by the momentum of totalitarianism itself. The masses have to be won by propaganda. And Arendt then goes on to explain the role that control plays in a regime of true totalitarianism. Quote, Wherever totalitarianism possesses absolute control, it replaces propaganda with indoctrination and uses violence not so much to frighten people, this is done only in the initial stages when political opposition still exists, as to realize constantly its ideological doctrines and its practical lies. End quote. Wow. Now, Annie Holmquist says, look, given that statement, it would seem that we, particularly New York City, are only in the opening act of totalitarian rule. Clearly, political opposition to vaccine mandates still exists, and as such, government officials are using propaganda and attempting to strong-arm the citizenry through fear, fear of the virus, fear of losing a job, fear of ostracization. When the government gains, rather, the full control that right now it's grasping so hard to get, we will know by the fact that propaganda is replaced with indoctrination and violence is used to realize its ideologies and lies. Those who've gone before and witnessed totalitarianism unfolding before their eyes, such as Hannah Arendt, have left warning signs and indicators of totalitarianism as it emerges. But Annie Holmquist says the question is whether we have eyes to see, courage to fight, or, and wisdom to care enough to rally the troops and herd them away from the cliff. 
Now, I understand, you know, and, and I get it. Some people think, Brian, you're just, you're so obsessed with this. You know, you've got to resist. You've got to be free. You've got to stand up for your rights. And I'll admit, it is a magnificent obsession. It really is. <laughs> and and, and I, I find myself dwelling on it just about every waking moment of every day. Now, maybe it's uh, indica- indicative of, you know, well, you've got some kind of mental issues there, son, and you should probably, you know, get some help for that. I think it's something more, though. I think it's more a matter of, like a lot of folks, I feel a sense of sacred duty to speak up on these things. And it's not because I have all the answers. But I've been very, very fortunate. In fact, I'll just use the word blessed in my life to have crossed paths with people and information sources that have taught me how to recognize what is authentic liberty, what is a threat to authentic liberty, what is government supposed to do, and what shouldn't it be doing. And I've also been blessed enough to, you know, have the, the opportunity to, to, to have a platform, to have a voice, and the ability to, to reach out to people and try to persuade them there's a better way. I feel like God would expect me to use those opportunities, those, those gifts, those talents that I've, I've spent a lifetime developing in a way that, uh, that hopefully lifts the people around me and inspires them to, to stand up and be counted, you know, to, to stand for light as opposed to just simply, you know, self-aggrandizement and building myself a little, you know, monument of, of, of look how great I am. So that's why I do what I do. You know, I love that I can make a living from doing this. You'll notice that uh, I, I'm I'm still not living large. You know, I'm I'm not invited to all of the social events of the century. I'm okay with that because I find great purpose in speaking that message of liberty and encouraging other people that this is a message that's still relevant. It's still something that matters in our time more so than we think. And underlying all of it is the understanding that that liberty is the greatest gift that God has given us. And it's something we've taken for granted for a long time, too. Might be time to change our thinking on that and show it the respect and honor that it deserves. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This program does not exist to give you all the answers to life's questions. It's not here to tell you what to think. But I definitely am here every day, Monday through Friday, encouraging people to think as clearly and independently as possible. And and more importantly, once you know who you are and what you stand for, to stand up and be that person and make the difference that you were born to make by claiming your heritage as a free individual. If that's something that resonates with you, I would invite you, please pull up a chair. Come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers 
And let's understand the world around us and what we can do to have that positive influence. Yeah, it's not as much fun as just, you know, being against people and things and, you know, letting the world know, here's what I'm against. But it's very satisfying to stand for something and to be known for what you stand for. So let's begin. I wanted to uh, start by talking a little bit about the surveillance state. What's the big deal about living in a surveillance society? I know there are there are many who buy into the the idea of, well, I have nothing to hide, so therefore I really don't have anything to fear if the government is keeping track of, you know, all these different things that are going on. But I beg to differ. And it comes down to something very simple, and that is you are not really living authentically. In other words, you're not behaving normally if you know that you're being observed. Now take a minute to unpack that and just think about that. If you know people are watching, do you pick your nose? Of course you don't. Nobody wants to be seen with their finger digging up their nose. Now, I'm sorry for who this, whoever this might offend, but uh, do people still pick their noses? Yes, they do. When they believe they're in private. <laughs> Unfortunately for some people, it's, I'm in my car, nobody's going to see me. <laughs> they're, you know, roto-rootering around. <laughs> Bottom line is, you behave differently when you know that you're being observed. And in a surveillance society, the idea is that you and the rest of the citizenry are conditioned to understand you're never really alone. Steve Martinot has a great explanation of what the surveillance state is and how it contributes to the enslavement of a people. He says, it's time to take a serious look at what living in a surveillance state does to us. Now, we can leave aside the usual question of what it looks like. Surveillance is, by nature, clandestine. It's a ruse. And when caught in the act, it pretends to be unofficial or even accidental. It wears a mask of many rationalizations, each of which presents itself as evidence of the unseen. Thus, it demands that we take it on faith. Now, does that mean that those who accept a state of surveillance or a being watched have simply enlisted in another faith-based community? Does surveillance belong to a competition of faiths? He asks, who do we become when politically and technologically we are forced into such a community? Now, he says, at the present time in the U.S., the focus of surveillance has become the crime problem. On the lookout for the incipient evildoer, surveillance rationalizes itself through technological silence, while depending on sociological explanations. See, it's supposed to prevent crime or help prevent crime, but that just makes it more mysterious. Does it stop corporate crime? Does it rescue us from administrative corruption? These crimes reside in the domain of brave investigative journalism. When nine different people observed a woman being sexually assaulted on a train back in October... All they could think of to do was to record the event on their nine separate cell phones, thinking perhaps that that act of surveillance would stop the crime they were witnessing. Remaining in the hands of police, will the technology of surveillance stop the crimes committed by the police? Even the judicial system finds itself unable to prosecute crimes unless caught on viral video. It refused to charge the cop who shot Jacob Blake seven times point-blank in the back. 
It couldn't even bring itself to charge him with cowardice on the job, let alone attempted murder. You've got to either be a craven coward or a dedicated murderer to shoot someone in the back. Now, I'm going to disagree with the author on this one and say, if this is the guy for whom the whole uh, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, you know, riots began. And it's pretty clear from the video that the guy was actively trying to get away from the police, actively trying to get into a vehicle where he could possibly drive away from them, reaching for a knife. Um, It's sad and it's tragic, but uh, I think that officer was probably justified in using deadly force. So that's my mild disagreement. Back to the article. The alleged crime of the alleged act of crime prevention gives surveillance an aura of social value. Yet even then, its social acceptance has to be rationalized in turn. Typically, one says, well, I have nothing to fear. I'm not doing anything wrong. But what reveals itself in such a disclaimer is a very complicated structure of fear. It's addressed to a primordial fear of the state for which it substitutes a postulated and fearful threat. In other words, a crime problem with respect to which it takes sides. I'm not part of the threat, as if it's afraid to be confused with those who are. In other words, surveillance strategies carefully brand themselves as protection against crime in order to assuage the more basic fear of surveillance. And a society that lives by hiding one fear under another is a paranoid society. And a paranoid society can be led around by the nose by anyone who shouts threat loud enough to be heard or to be unquestionable. Now, Steve Martinot says, you know, that which fear defines, he describes this by saying fear of crime is a tautology. Fear is the very means by which crime is defined. To establish the criminality of an act, one must make the commission of that act fearful. But he says law by itself will not do that. It requires a certain kind of administrative terrorism. So throughout the 17th century in England, the sanctity of property was established by hanging anyone, even children, for stealing anything, a handkerchief or a piece of string. Now, very few people fear white-collar crime, so it's rarely investigated. But when fear defines criminality, it is bottom-feeding. Through a call for, though a call for assistance itself is not criminal, the arriving police will assume criminality and then escalate that innocent request to a need for law enforcement. Whatever the call, the assumption of criminality becomes the real content of police response. This is said openly in the recent docudrama, The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. If the person is black, the cops approach with guns drawn, ready to shoot, an essential ingredient in criminalizing the black body. Now, he says this basic element of our social environment, police behavior, cannot help but skew our typical attitudes towards crime. Imagined potential criminalities get conflated with real life itself. The presence of an eight-year-old black girl selling lemonade on the street becomes a reason to call the police. The interlinking of fear and surveillance becomes manic. Mr. Martinot says we can see just how skewed the concept of justice can be in the vastness of the plea bargaining system. A huge number of people, estimated to be between 50 and 90 percent of all U.S. prisoners, are locked up owing to plea bargaining. Now, in the plea bargain process, a person is charged with a serious crime on on questionable evidence in order to extort a confession to a lesser crime for which there is no evidence, in order to imprison while avoiding the expense of a trial. 
Now, the actual number of victims of this extortion is unknowable, since conviction records only contain the elicited confession rather than the bargain. It's simply an easy way of filling prisons, and in its drive from mass incarceration, the U.S. has become world-renowned and has broken all records. Now, some people do commit crimes, but once the process of criminalization transcends the principle of justice, the notion of punishment becomes primary over the idea of crime itself. It is a criminalization process that creates injustice in the desire to absolve paranoia. And there's real irony He says, if I claim that all prisoners jailed in the U.S. today through plea bargaining are themselves innocent, that statement is irrefutable. Now, it may not be true, but it cannot be disproved since plea bargains leave no record of trial or certification of evidence or witness testimony. Nothing at all to signify a judicial process. Only confessions exist forced under the pressure of blackmail. Judicial condemnation is reduced to pure existential event. And he says the use of suspicion linked to video evidence or uh, other surveillance will play in a similar circumstantial, non-evidentiary role. One can expect the results to involve a plea bargain or police harassment or even outright criminalization. He says a judiciary deserves harsh judgment to the extent that it reconciles itself with its own commission of injustice. We're going to come back to Mr. Martinot's article here in a few moments, but... Maybe you're not aware of all the ways that Big Brother is keeping an eye on you. But I think subconsciously all of us have that uh, sense of uneasiness. I don't want to say the wrong thing or be seen doing the wrong thing. Wouldn't want to bring suspicion. Well, why is that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is kind of a tough topic because uh, this really does kind of stir, in me at least, it stirs up a kind of a feeling of paranoia like, ah, crap. I sleep better at night not knowing how much the government is trying to keep tabs on me. What I read, who I talk to, what I spend my money on, how much money I'm earning. You know, I mean, it's, it's just endless. But I think it's better to face some hard facts, and this is one of them. It's an article by Steve Martinot about what is the surveillance state and how does it contribute to the enslavement of a people. He talks about the environment of super surveillance, saying the drivenness of fear has succeeded in producing a system of surveillance that's already ubiquitous. In the name of security, the government has built a system that goes by the name of Echelon, Echelon is a worldwide surveillance project whose purpose is to listen and record all electronic communications in the world. Did you get that? In the world. Echelon uses antennas, vortex satellites, wiretaps, cable taps, fiber optic cable taps. It has enormous data storage capacity and filters its info extractions into categories using keywords. Now, most of its collected data may be useless at the moment, but nothing is discarded as unusable. That which pertains to current government projects or schemes gets forwarded to the relevant agencies. The rest sits waiting for future projects that may find some of that stored data relevant. Now, just to put that into terms that apply to you and me, 
That means that all that information that the government is hoovering up about you and your browsing habits and your communications and everything that you've been sharing electronically, it's sitting on it. Presumably for the day that it needs to build a case against you. But all that information is there for it to pick through at its leisure and government could then, you know, use this to frame the case of here's why we need to put Brian away because he's such a dangerous guy. Now, Mr. Martinot says the local reflection of Echelon's existence appears in urban police demands for their own means of surveillance. Five years ago, Berkeley Police Department asked to have automated license plate readers provided and installed. Now, carried by police cars, that reader records all license plates parked on the street that the car would pass. And the plate's numbers would be read and compiled with time and place of reading, and then later combined with owner's name, address, warrants, etc., obtained from the Division of Motor Vehicles. Stationary readers would record passing car plates and include their identification in the database. Now, at the time of the police demand, police were accused of participating in federal surveillance, but they demurred and said, no, 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 the data we collect will only remain with the department and not be given to any federal bureau or fusion center. But that turned out to be an empty and mendacious promise. Since the data was to be radioed from the reader to a collector at the police station, it would be recorded automatically by Echelon while in transmission. Thus, the information would not have literally been given to the federal government, but there was nothing anyone could do to stop it from being taken. Police pretense that data could be withheld is only a form of deception, and the same holds true for any additional surveillance projects or use of police cameras. Now, the intimate connection between social control and surveillance has been extensively analyzed through a concept of prison architecture called a panopticon. This was a 19th century idea developed by Jeremy Bentham, a plan to make the control of prisoners direct and efficient through the use of surveillance. So the panopticon, if you've never seen an image of it, consisted of a multi-tiered structure of cells, each tier arranged in a semicircle around a central tower. The outer walls of the semicircular tiers were solid and windowless, as were the walls between the cells. The inner wall facing the tower was composed of bars, though, through which everything the prisoner did in the cell could be seen. None of the prisoners could see each other, but all could be seen by a guard from his vantage point at the circle's center in the tower. Each prisoner's activities could be watched without the individual prisoner knowing neither his watcher nor the fact that he was being watched. Any violation of rules would be instantly observed, however, and subsequently punished. Now, the expected effect of this setup was twofold. Each person became their own constant disciplinarian and source of regimentation. And each lived his own life in the awareness of being an object for another unseen consciousness. In effect, each became a dual consciousness, his own and that of the unseen other, resulting in a loss of identity through that doubling of consciousness. Who one thinks one is will drain away under the pressure of what the one watching may think. So suspended between solitary confinement, alone in one's cell, under the inescapable gaze of a guard... The psychological effect would be a slow process of self-dislocation and eventually dementia. Now, a related form of dual consciousness was theorized by W.E.B. Dubois as the condition of the African-American in the U.S. insofar as black people were watched as subjects of white attention all the time. In large part, he says the semi-panopticon character of black life in white supremacist society 
has been, medi- has been mediated by the black construction of alternative cultural communities. They provide some insulation from the psychological incarceration imposed by white culture and its systematic discrimination. I'm getting some pretty strong social justice vibes, but hang with me here. By turning toward each other, these communities enabled the seizure and reconstruction of black identity. For many, they provide the peace of being out of reach of white, malign attentions, even those that begin with, we just want to help. This sense of community was the environment for the uh, rise of arts and letters in the Harlem Renaissance during the 1930s. In the 60s, it gave rise to black arts movements in many cities. It was a black cultural environment on which uh, Chokwe Lumumba's program of community development and cooperative administration relied in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, he talks about how in the Bay Area, serious damage and disruption to the black community in Berkeley and Oakland occurred at, occurred at the hands of BART construction, that's Bay Area Rapid Transit, during the 1970s. The 7th, Center, uh, 7th Street Center of Black Life in West Oakland was laid waste, and in South Berkeley, the area where Martin Luther King and Adeline Streets come together as a similar center of black life, succumbed to the sprawl of a BART park, parking lot. Now, on the other hand... The psychocultural effect of the U.S. racial panopticon was somewhat mitigated by the fact that black people know the generalizations and the narratives by which white people tell themselves who black people are. So for black people, the character of the watchers is not unknown. But he says it should be clear by now that the use of surveillance technology as a dimension of governing, even under the pretense of a limited form of crime control, reveals deep historical and cultural links to what he calls white supremacy and its systemic racism. Only resistance against it keeps modern society as a whole from simply devolving to a form of prison. Now, there's quite a bit more here, but uh, I'll, I'll let you discover this on your own. Bottom line, he says, the original fear underlying our topic here, police and the surveillance state, which skews our typical attitudes towards crime, criminality, and thus justice, emerged from the first founding of a police agency in the North American colonies. colonies rather, And this is where, as, as much as he's putting off a social justice vibe, there's, there's a degree of truth here. As soon as chattel slavery was established in 1682, a fear of the enslaved, of the exploited and oppressed, was inculcated by the elite as a foreseen rising in rebellion against the elite against the landowners with their straw bosses, and against government bureaucrats with their tax collectors. So to fear the possibility of rebellion, however, is to accept the injustice against which real rebellion will eventually hurl itself. So in the pre-U.S. colonies, the original police agency guarding enslavement was slave patrols founded in 1710. These consisted of poor white farmers and workers, those from whom social standing in the colony had been withheld enlisted by the landed elite to stop runaways and to suppress all indications of organization among the enslaved. It was the original surveillance mechanism. Interesting. So I guess the the bottom line is uh, today's attempt to protect against criminality with technology rather than social rehumanization He says is the twin brother of the slave patrols. They share the same heart. The only difference being that we're all considered slaves, regardless of skin color, under the new surveillance society. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a special shout-out to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Now, they're located in St. George, Utah. And I would encourage you, if you live in southern Utah, this is a place you should be familiar with. 779 South Bluff Street is where you'll find them. Sewing is one of the top hobbies, and it continues to grow along with things like embroidery and, and quilting. If, uh, if you don't know about these kind of things, trust me, you probably know somebody who does and who thrives on it. But if you are looking for brother sewing and embroidery machines or baby lock sergers or uh, handy quilt, long arm quilting machines, these are really marvelous devices. And Sewing and Quilting Center can not only sell them to you, they can service them, they can train you how to use them, and they have all the things that you need to go along with it, including fabric, superior thread, uh, the cuddle fabric, which I guess is comparable to the minky, uh, you know, soft, warm blanket fabric. Great stuff. If you'd like more information, click on the link that I provide in my show notes under my sponsors. That's SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. SewingQuiltingCenter.com. So here's an interesting question for you. Do victimless crimes have victims? Now, that sounds like a pretty loaded question. I've had a lot of discussions over the years with, with people on all sides of the political spectrum about this very question. I've come to the conclusion that keeping government within its proper boundaries requires that you understand its proper role. And this is something that, unfortunately, there's a lot of my friends on the political right who don't get this. And, in fact, any person, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, who says, well, there ought to be a law, needs to, needs to really stop and think. Do victimless crimes have victims? Here's how Lawrence M. Vance answers that question. Actually, he starts with the question that was posed to him. Do libertarians believe that nothing should be illegal? And Lawrence Vance says, look, I concluded that because every real crime needs an actual victim, not a potential victim or a possible victim, but rather a tangible and identifiable victim who suffered measurable harm to his person or measurable damages to his property, there should be, as far as the law is concerned, no such thing as nebulous crimes against God, religion, nature, society, humanity, civilization, the greater good, the public interest, or the state and that there should be no laws against gambling, prostitution, ticket scalping, price gouging, pornography, drug possession, or use, unless such actions involve violating the personal and property rights of others, as opposed to their sensibilities, their moral code, religion, customs, or traditions. I think that's actually a pretty solid answer, even though I'm I'm positive. Right now there are some folks shaking their heads going, no, 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 no. But he says, one response stood out, and not just because it seemed sincere and did not denounce me with profanity. It basically said, victimless crimes do in fact have victims, but libertarians just fail to recognize the victims. Now, Lawrence Vance says the libertarian movement has been hijacked and is being harmed by people who fail to acknowledge the real quantifiable harm of gambling, prostitution, pornography, and drugs. He says, my critic had a little problem with price gouging, rather, and did not mention ticket scalping. But here are the exact statements. Gambling harms gamblers and their families. 
In Arizona, for instance, seniors gamble away their life earnings or their life savings and become dependent on their children and the taxpayer. Prostitution harms the prostitute. She's often effectively a slave since her handler is likely to get her on drugs so he can control her and also likely to blackmail her if she quits. And when the man who visits her is married, it harms his wife. It breaches their covenant. Pornography harms the hearts and minds of everyone who looks at it and of many of the participants. Again, the images are often used as blackmail to keep a woman enslaved to the industry. Drug use can be a problem if a person drives under the influence or has a family to take care of and he can no longer do so because he's impaired himself. It also wastes the investment of the people who raised and educated him, among other things. Drug dealers enslave others. Now, these were the objections that a, that a reader had expressed to Lawrence Vance. He says, where do I begin? Does gambling harm gamblers and their families? Is there any way to know what percentage of the millions of people who gamble at casinos in America every year are harmed by doing so? In almost every state, both young and old spend their last penny on lottery tickets, hoping and praying against terrible odds to win millions. Should all state lotteries be shut down? Do all or even most prostitutes have handlers? Are all or even most prostitutes who have handlers slaves? Now he says, I don't know how many prostitutes read this website, but I suspect that many, including those who are not proud of what they do, would feel insulted by these generalizations. If a married man who visits a prostitute harms his wife, then should adultery with non-prostitutes also be illegal? How do we know that pornography harms the hearts and minds of everyone who looks at it as well as many of the participants? And why would a woman who voluntarily strips for money and allows herself to be filmed be concerned about being blackmailed? What if a drug user does not drive under the influence and has no family? Should drugs be legal under these conditions? He says, and I fail to see how a willing seller is enslaving a willing buyer by selling him something at a mutually agreed upon price. Now, there are so many more things that I could say. Now, listen closely because you know, I know there are still people going, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, he's, it sounds like he's just, you know, trying to explain this away. Lawrence Vance says, this is not to say that gambling, prostitution, pornography, and drugs are wholesome and harmless and not sinful and injurious. But he asks, should gambling be illegal because some gamblers have squandered their life savings? Should prostitution be illegal because some prostitutes have handlers who keep them high on drugs? Should pornography be illegal because it harms the hearts and minds of some people who look at it? Should drugs be illegal because someone might drive under the influence or neglect his family? In fact, he says, here are some related questions. Should tobacco be illegal because it's addictive, unhealthy, and a waste of money? Should junk food be illegal because of its responsibility for the obesity epidemic? He says the most destructive thing in America today that affects people from all walks of life and harms people more than gambling, prostitution, pornography, and drugs combined is alcohol. So to be, <laughs> excuse me, to be consistent, advocates of making gambling, prostitution, pornography, and drugs illegal should likewise be crusading for alcohol prohibition. And if someone feels that gambling, prostitution, pornography, drugs, tobacco, junk food, and alcohol are harmful, they should not be illegal. Then he says, we have no quarrel. 
He says, even though those things are harmful, they shouldn't be illegal. Then we have no quarrel. But he says, I've always in many articles about these subjects maintained. These things are or could be addictive, financially ruinous, stupid, destructive, dangerous, a waste of money, a bad habit, a vice, immoral, or sinful. But his point is, it's just not the job of government to prevent or discourage anyone from partaking of any of them. Did you get that? Gambling, prostitution, and pornography and drugs are vices, but they are not crimes. He says, I can't improve upon the words of the great 19th century classical liberal political philosopher Lysander Spooner. Quote, vices are those acts by which a man harms himself or his property. Crimes are those acts by which one man harms the person or property or of another. Vices are simply the errors which a man makes in his search after his own happiness. Unlike crimes, they imply no malice toward others and no interference with their persons or property. Unless this clear distinction between vices and crimes be made and recognized by the laws, there can be on earth no such thing as individual right, liberty, or property. No such things as the right of one man to control to the control of his own person and property and the corresponding and co-equal rights of another man to the control of his own person and property. End quote. If you haven't read uh, Lysander Spooner's uh, essay, Vices Are Not Crimes, it's really good. Lawrence Vance says, just because someone is directly engaging in vice may indirectly affect someone else does not mean that a victimless crime has a victim. And maybe we need to be more explicit about, you know, what we define as crime. I think a person who measurably, objectively harms another person or damages their property ought to be held accountable. That's where justice comes into play. And this is one of the places where laws and government, you know, actually have a role. As, as Bastiat said, you know, the idea of the law is that justice will prevail. But I think we do an immense amount of harm when we try to use government as the solution for mistakes that people make in their search for happiness, those vices by which they primarily harm themselves. Now, there can be some collateral damage there, too. But that's not a matter of criminal justice. That's something better addressed by other institutions in society like church, like family, like community. You get the picture? There are more tools than just government to solve those kinds of problems. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe, I will send out a copy of my emailed show, show notes to you each day that I do the program. doesn't cost you a dime. You just go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com, click on the subscribe button, and I will add you to the list. And you can find some pretty good reading. You're not going to agree with everything, and that's okay. I don't agree with everything that I share here either. I just Some stuff I just find interesting and, and want to uh, provoke some deeper, more independent thought. But if you would be so kind as to subscribe, I think you would find it worth your while. You've heard me talk about how uh, building parallel systems 
is is a great way to uh, to to basically withdraw from those systems that are too oppressive. And I don't know if you'll find this as good news as I did, but right now the big tech uh, elites are really worried about the rise of alternative media platforms and the Rebel Alliance. Now, this is from conservativetreehouse.com. But the article here says, There's a tremor in the dark force that encompasses the totality of big tech control platforms. An interesting article from Axios notes that the tech oligarchs and multinational corporate behemoths like Google, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, etc., that manipulate and control information are starting to worry about the new right-wing architecture that is creating alternate platforms. Now, it's important to keep a solid reference point in the front of our mind when we review any details about the information war. The fourth branch of government has strong dependency on their public-private partnership between big tech and government intelligence networks. It's a partnership of mutual benefit. U.S. government officials use their political power to direct the filtering mechanisms of big tech, and in return, the tech empire facilitates the re-election of political officials to support the network. However, a large and growing band of rebels have been assembling platform architecture outside the controls of big tech. A method of delivering what you are reading right now was created specifically as part of this architecture. A growing network of dissident people in and around the tech industry continue to build the framework for alternative platforms on the Internet. And now, big tech is starting to realize it's actually possible for ants to eat an elephant. Notice how the focus of concern within the Axios article isn't about the creation of the alternative platforms per se, but what the Empire's really angered about is that money is available to support the Rebel Alliance. Many of these efforts couldn't exist without the backing of major corporate figures and billionaires eager to push back against things like censorship and cancel culture, in quotation marks, the empire says, as the officials inside the system gnash their teeth in anger. The section under Why It Matters tells us the empire stormtroopers, FBI, DOJ, and government regulatory agencies are likely to target the financial institutions or the financial mechanisms, people, and groups who fund the Rebel Alliance. Watch for it. The Empire is worried about these cloud-based hosting possibilities and the creation of server banks to support dissident voices. Everything from video platforms and book publishing companies are being created outside of the control of the Empire. They're starting to worry how their business models will be affected as their audience shrinks. Thus, the government subsidizing of these big big tech platforms is likely to become more prevalent in the future. I actually was just doing an interview with uh, one of the Young Voices contributors yesterday about about the infrastructure bill that uh, was passed and and signed into law. This is something, this is a trillion dollar bill plus bill that uh, Joe Biden was was pushing to get. And it's a big bill. Thousands of pages. There's so much pork in there. And, you know, handouts for this favored industry and this favored special interest group. But I think one of the most disturbing aspects that came up in the course of that conversation was there's also a very strong push to put more government-subsidized, if not government-controlled, broadband out there. That just seems like the perfect opportunity to to secure control over Internet. 
Yeah, I'd rather have private companies, you know, in, in charge there. Even if I disagree with them, I'd rather have the private companies doing that. And I think this article is correct. Look at how government will go after the financial mechanisms. You know, YouTube deplatforms and demonetizes accounts all the time. Watch for banks to start saying, your money's no good here. Why? Because you have a conservative bent or you have, you know, your your social credit score is dipping. It really is starting to, to take place. I want to share with you a couple excerpts from the Axios article, too, because this is, this is from Sarah Fisher and Dan Premack on Axios. Right wing builds its own echo chamber. How can we never hear about the left-wing echo chamber? Just just wondering. They start with uh, monthly downloads of U.S. right-wing apps. And it's things like the Daily Wire, the MeWe Network, Blaze TV, Parler, Newsmax, OANN, CloudHub, Rumble, and so forth. And it says, conservatives are aggressively building their own apps, phones, cryptocurrencies, and publishing houses in an attempt to circumvent what they see as an increasingly liberal internet and media ecosystem. Why does it matter? Well, many of these efforts couldn't exist without the backing of major corporate figures and billionaires eager to push back against things like censorship and cancel culture. Now, it's still not clear whether demand will match supply. I just want to bring something up here that uh, maybe it slipped your memory, but um, remember following the, the election and following the certification of of the election results and the January 6th <clears throat> protest, mostly peaceful protest at the Capitol. Sorry, I just can't help giving them a taste of their own medicine. Parler, which was taking off like crazy, suddenly found itself denied servers. I think the uh, AWS servers through Amazon absolutely deplatformed them, shut them down. And, and Parler's back, it's operating, but it's not like it was. The momentum that they were building up at that time was immense. And big tech had to do something to pull the rug out from under them. So I would look for more examples of uh, this kind of response coming up. Now, driving the news, this Axios article says Rumble, a conservative alternative to YouTube, agreed to go public in an implied $2.1 billion valuation via a SPAC merger. Now, the SPAC is sponsored by Cantor Fitzgerald, a financial services firm led by billionaire and Trump fundraiser Howard Lutnick. I'm excited to support Rumble and its ability to operate the neutral video platform, Lutnick said in a statement. Then you have Trump's new social media company called Truth Social, also planning to go public via SPAC on Saturday, saying that it had secured a billion dollars in so-called pipe financing. Now, the SPAC is currently trading at a market value of $1.6 billion, down from its $4.5 billion peak in late October. Truth Social has yet to name an SEO. Then you've got Getter which is a social app that was launched by ex-Trump aide Jason Miller. They haven't disclosed all of their investors, but but Miller's acknowledged one of the app's funders is the family foundation of Chinese billionaire Guo Wengui. And aside from social networks, the article says conservatives are pushing to create alternatives to other tech tools and communication platforms. So book publishing, Trump allies recently launched a book publishing house called Winning Team Publishing, run by former Trump campaign aide Sergio Gore and Donald Trump Jr. The imprint will publish the ex-president's first book, a coffee table tome that is picture-focused. 
Then there's cloud storage. Trump's new social media company will be hosted online by RightForge, an Internet infrastructure company that courts conservatives. As Axios's Margaret Harding McGill notes, uh, no, relying on a conservative web hosting service could help Trump avoid the same issues Parler faced when Amazon pulled its web services following the Capitol siege. As far as crypto, there's a new cryptocurrency called MagaCoin that's caught the attention of high-profile conservatives per The Guardian. Phones, a young Bitcoin op- entrepreneur is developing a freedom phone, a device being marketed to conservatives. So while politicians are eager to find new unregulated avenues for political speech, data from Aptopia shows consumers aren't yet sprinting toward new alternatives. Bottom line is, conservative media has been a powerhouse for a long time, but this phase of expansion isn't about more or louder conservative voices. It's about building an entire conservative ecosystem. Now, I get the sense that they're using the word conservative as a little bit of a cuss word. It's a pejorative. Uh, These conservative sources and so forth. But let's call it what it really is. It's a parallel system. And parallel systems are a peaceful way for people to withdraw their consent from systems that do not serve them. I'm all for it. Even if there's some that I may not agree with on Facebook. Look, I'm, I'm really not that. I'm not going to carry water for former President Donald Trump. But I'm glad to see alternatives like this coming up. Competition brings out the best. And right now, we really need some competition against some of these tech giants. And in a very small way, even this little show is doing its part to help build that alternative echo chamber. This is The Brian Hyde Show.